I would rather you have no influencers. I would rather you have no hype. I would rather you raise less capital and obsess with what is the product feature that's really going to resonate with a group of people like the raison d'etre. What is it that they're waking up every day to use your product to do and why your product and not other stuff? That's Mark Suster, managing partner at Upfront Ventures, a leading venture capital firm based in Los Angeles, California. As part of Upfront, Mark has led investment rounds in a range of both business and consumer-focused startups, including Bird Scooters, Chow Now, Inovka, and ThreadUp, which went public in March of 2021 at a $1.3 billion valuation. Before entering venture capital, Mark was the founder and CEO of two successful business enterprise software companies, Build Online and Coral, which was acquired by Salesforce.com. Mark also has a popular blog called Both Sides of the Table, where he shares advice and relates perspectives from both investors and startups. In this episode, Mark talks about why an innovative product roadmap is so important and why he believes location is more important than ever as we enter a work-from-anywhere world. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode product-led growth. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Mark, I'm so excited to have you on Decoding Digital. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So you began your career as an entrepreneur. You launched two companies that were acquired, one of them by Salesforce. And then you moved to your current role as managing partner at Upfront Ventures, a VC firm based in LA. How and why did you make the jump from entrepreneur to VC investor? You know, it's an interesting question. And you'd like to think that everyone in their career knew exactly what they were doing and made very purposeful decisions. And of course, we all tell stories in reverse that make it sound like that, but it's seldom the case. So let me tell you what actually happened is I had sold my company to Salesforce. I was VP of products. I was talking with Mark Benioff about a much more senior role at the company in the long term. I was seriously considering it. But, you know, at heart, I'm an entrepreneur, and it seemed like maybe there was one too many Marks at Salesforce.com, and he was the real Mark. And hats off to him for what he's achieved and what he's built. And I just thought I wasn't done with my journey. So I called my VC firm that had backed both of my startups. And I had worked with Yves Cisteron at the time for eight years. Yves is French, but has lived most of his professional life in the United States. He was a really great mentor to me. And I said, I want to go do another company. And he said to me, have you ever considered venture capital? And I said that I had. Back then, most VCs didn't want entrepreneurs. So most VCs that were reaching out to me were talking about EIR roles or operating partner roles. And I just thought, if I'm going to do VC, I want to be an investor. I want to really be an investor. So my mentality at the time, and this is 2007, my mentality at the time was, if I'm not great, at being a venture capitalist, I can always fall back to being an entrepreneur because what does it take to be an entrepreneur? All it takes is a bit of stupidity, (laughs) a bit of like stupid blind belief in yourself and willingness to work for free. 
you know, and I'm stupid enough to believe in myself and work for free for a period of time. So I thought that's a pretty good fallback for me. So truthfully, I thought I'll give it a shot for two years. And if not, I'll go back to being an entrepreneur. And I know you didn't ask this, and I'm sorry for a long answer, but just to say what I was really thinking at the time was I was 39 and I'm now 53. And at 39, having done two software companies, having actually started my career as a programmer, as a computer programmer, but having done that, I really thought my analogy is basketball. At some point, you're just not as fast as the next guy. At some point, you just can't hit the three-point shot with time running out. And if you can, you want to be on the court. And I loved being on the court. I loved every minute of it. But having played the game for more than a decade, at some point, you realize I might be a better coach than player. And I kind of had that mentality of, let me see if I can coach. And I've enjoyed every minute of that. I know that you started your career in enterprise software development, and then obviously started enterprise tech companies, one sold to Salesforce. And I know in your VC experience, you're very focused on consumer tech. One of the things I'm always impressed with you by is that you're also an early adopter of a lot of products and technologies. Like I think at one point you were a power user of Snapchat and one of the most followed Snapchatters. So Wanted to get a sense of your perspective on what consumer tech people can learn from the enterprise and vice versa. Well, let me first say why I try to use as many tools as I can. I mean, stating the obvious, I grew up a programmer from the age of 13. It's just how I'm wired. I'm very kind of left brain and I enjoy problem solving and computers really scratch that itch. But what I like to say is, imagine you want to be an artist. Let's say you want to make pottery, and you don't have a feel for the clay. The only way that you can really pass judgment on what you think of video, audio, what you think about how to deal with creators, creator tools, how do you get marketing and distribution, and what does consumer behavior look like, you need to play with the clay. And I don't have to be the best person in every platform. I have to have intuition for it. So I took a call yesterday from a really talented, I think, young entrepreneur, and he's building in the audio space. And he had a really good deck, and the deck was really vanilla cookie cutter. And I think it was total bullshit. And honestly, I called bullshit on it. I said, this is exactly what the traditional playbook will be for a deck. I'm going to get these followers these people using my product and they've got millions of followers and audio is going to look a little bit like this is the audio version of TikTok and TikTok then came after Instagram and before Instagram was Twitter and now this is the natural next extension. And I said, I don't think that's true. I don't think you have a true north. Your true north has got to be what is unique about audio? How and why do we use audio? How do I discover audio? How do I engage with audio? How does the fact that I have an AirPod in my ear make this a different medium? And if you're just going to say, well, Twitter worked this way and I'm an audio Twitter, you're not going to win, right? And if you're not going to win just because you get a bunch of influencers to use your product. And I have that intuition because I've used every audio product. And because I've experimented with building with some of our team's audio products, and I've watched how users have built them. Now, I might be wrong. I'm not always right, but I have intuition. And you only get intuition from playing with the clay. What I would say to you about enterprise, because I know that was a large part of your question, in the era I grew up in, it was top-down selling. 
you go, you get decision makers, they hold budgets, they sign large deals, and then they tell groups of people to use product. And of course, we know most enterprise sales these days work through what people call PLG, product-led growth. And the idea is really simple. One is you get masses of people actually using your product, and then you find ways to mobilize groups of people using your product to build it into an enterprise sale. I think the first big company that I know of to accomplish that was actually Skype. And I watched Skype spread across Europe when I lived in Europe. And I just couldn't believe like every enterprise tried to kill Skype. They tried to say, oh, it's not secure and I don't want to buy a license and let's get this out of here. And how did this get all of it? It was like a virus spreading across companies, but it was just too powerful for anyone to stop. So people had to then say, okay, we got to find a way to make this work. That's how Yammer grew. That's how Slack grew. And I think there's a lot of power to it, which is what about if we actually had tools that masses of people wanted to use because they were so well designed that they actually made people more productive rather than a senior top-down person imposing them. And I think that's really where we're at. So that's where I think the crossover between enterprise and consumer is. I love the concept of product-led growth and want to decode that for a second. So I can understand as an entrepreneur, your plan A in the 10 slide deck that we're sending to you is going to say, hey, this is going to spark virally and there's a great viral coefficient and everyone's going to use it. But as we know, as entrepreneurs, your first attempts often don't turn out like the next Slack. So what's the plan B? Is it pivot to an enterprise sale or is it iterate? So the reason I like enterprise is exactly what you're saying. I remember years ago, I had dinner with Mark Andreessen and he said, I like to do enterprise A and consumer B. And I said, why? He said, well, look, at the end of the day, there's no way that I can manifest success of a consumer company. Either consumers love the product or they don't. Whereas with enterprise, I can call a bunch of CTOs and CIOs and at least get the initial implementations going, right? And I think there's a lot of truth to that. With consumer products, it's really hard to manufacture success. It's either it just lights fire or it doesn't. I'll tell you my advice to this founder yesterday, who I'm going to spend more time with. I think he's in the right zip code, just maybe with the wrong product. I said to him, I would rather you have no influencers. I would rather you have no hype. I would rather you raise less capital and obsess with what is the product feature that's really going to resonate with a group of people like the raison d'etre. What is it that they're waking up every day to use your product to do and why your product and not other stuff? Until you solve that, no amount of hype is going to help you. In fact, hype will work against you because if you get a bunch of press and a bunch of hype and a bunch of people using your product and then 60 days later, they don't want to use it because it didn't really solve a fundamental need, you've set yourself up for failure. So in terms of product-led growth, what do you look for in a seed or series A investment that would give you a sense that there is this viral coefficient or product-led go-to-market? I always say I'm looking for three things. Number one, I'm looking for, let's say, the elusive product market. The second thing I'm looking for is founder market fit. The third thing is founder upfront fit. Product market fit, I don't get a wait for that. I've got to have an assertion that I believe there can be or will be product market fit. So how do I decide that? I have to believe at a unit economic level, individual user or payer, that you are going to add significant value to their job. And unless I can identify what real pain point you're solving, 
And why that's going to make a huge difference on a unit economic basis, I probably am not writing the check. I've got to have intuition, not not how you're going to charge, but why this is fundamentally going to make a difference for them. So let's call it assertion of product market fit. In the old days, I could wait. I can't wait. I don't write $50 million checks on a 250 pre anymore. I never did. But when you have product market fit, that's what happens. The second thing is founder market fit. I really need to understand why you're doing this. Because there's a lot of people who enter the markets because they think I should be doing a startup and this sounds like a good idea. But like, why are you driven to do this? And what intuition do you have about this market or these users that other people don't have? And you've got to be super driven to make that work. So I would say that's the second. And then founder upfront fit. We're looking for people who want to go on a 10 or 12 year journey with us. We're not looking for people to go on a two year journey. So you've got to be wanting to do this. This is your career. This is your livelihood, your life, and your mission. And if you're successful at it, you're going to be hugely financially and emotionally rewarded for doing it. Now, along the way, sometimes people call us and they say, hey, I got this offer. I think I need to take it. Or look, I've been doing this for two years and I don't think it's working. I think I need to kind of pivot or shut it down. We accept that that happens. But going in, we have to believe that you have the right intentions. On the point of product-led growth, I would assume that every company, whether you're a startup or whether you're an enterprise, wants to say that your product development is going to drive product-led growth. But in reality, what percent of products do you think end up being driven in a product-led go-to-market versus a sales-first go-to-market? Well, look, you know the old saying, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Every product person I know believes that product's the only thing that matters. And of course, I don't believe that. I believe great product is incredibly important. So let me just switch it to make it less emotional. There's no amount of killer marketing or amazing design you can put on a restaurant if you're serving shitty food. So you need to start with great food. Does it have to be the absolute best food in Los Angeles, the best food in New York? No, it needs to be great. And it needs to speak to a constituency, right? Like there's a constituency in LA that wants to eat $12 Korean food. And that's very different than Vespertine that was the top rated restaurant in Los Angeles that's currently serving fried chicken with caviar on it. (laughs) Those are $125 versus $12. So product can be different. Market can be different. Quality can be different. But I think at the end of the day, sales and marketing really matter. And it turns out that people buy product for reasons other than this is the absolute best product in the market. They buy product for perception that this is going to help them improve. You know, like how many people have Slack that are truly getting great productivity out of Slack? You know, probably... 20% and 80% have it and they kind of don't really know how to be the best productive Slack user or the best productive Notion user or whatever. So that comes down to me to marketing. And at the end of the day, I've got to create a desire and awareness for a product and identity with people wanting to buy it because they see other people model behavior. And so it starts with marketing. And look, I know most people who found businesses are either product or finance people that are super analytical types that think we should abolish sales. But the reality is sales exist for a reason. And salespeople are incredibly important. Their job is incredibly important. 
without a sales rep who understands organizational behavior, organizational design, decision-making, budgets, how are budgets approved? How are they decided? How do you navigate that? How do I leverage relationships to get enterprise sales done? How do I price the value rather than lowest common denominator? How do I do ROI calculators? All those things that are incredibly important to a sales process that I think most of Silicon Valley traditionally undervalues I think it's incredibly important. So you asked me a question and I've given you an incredibly off-topic long answer, but I believe in all the above. I believe in having great food, but it doesn't have to be the best food. It has to be great food, well-marketed, and people have to enjoy their experience. They have to identify with coming to your restaurant and being really happy with it and want to tell the world the viral coefficient, you want them telling them what a great experience it is, even if they're not sure why it was. So I totally agree that customer experience is super important. But I also think that segment is like your pick on first target super important. So for example, we sold around an enterprise customer, big telecom in Canada, and we worked a year to launch it, another six months to a year to really make it happen. And we put it all in and in the end, they didn't get it going the way we had anticipated. And then we were back to square one, kind of pitching the next cohort of customers. And eventually, it really took off and we were able to iterate. But one of my lessons was, well, we went really single-threaded with the business, could have gone under in many ways in that one year, just because we picked the wrong first customer. How do you think about that balance of really focusing on the customer experience, but also making sure that the first cohort is applicable to prove or not the vision? Well, one of the talks I give a lot to entrepreneurs is I call elephant, deer, and rabbit, okay? And my analogy is this. Elephant is a really big enterprise customer. It's the logo you want. Let me just call it this. Say you could serve Facebook. And let's say it's one of your first big customers. Is that a good idea? Well, if you're a startup and you've raised 3 million bucks and you have $300,000 ARR, landing Facebook is a curse. Because their relative leverage to you is extreme. They're going to have huge requirements. They're going to expect everything out of you. You're not going to live up to their expectation. They're going to send InfoSec on you. They're going to everything, right? It's David and Goliath, and you're set up to fail. And what you end up becoming in Facebook and maybe you in your first iteration with the telco, and by the way, I learned this from doing it myself and making the same mistake is you almost become like their in-house R&D department and they have the expectation that you're their in-house R&D department. So it takes you off track from trying to diversify your customer base and maybe building the feature set you should be building. So let's call that elephant. And eventually you want elephants, but you want elephants when you're an elephant hunter. And then rabbits to me is this idea of, well, instead of doing all that, I'm just going to build a tool that everybody can use and I don't want to have sales and I don't want to have to deal with customers and negotiate. I'm just going to put it out there and whoever uses it, uses it. And sometimes that works. But for the most part, the problem with rabbits is you go out in a field and they're everywhere and you're like, oh, there's a million of these. Surely I can catch one or two. And then you go out to catch them and you find they're pretty freaking hard to catch, right? It's just as much effort to get rabbits as it is to get a bit more meat. And you get them and you're like, gosh, this wasn't really worth the effort. So I usually say startups should be deer hunter. And my analogy is really simple, which is like, it's probably mid-sized customers that really need you, that never get the attention of the big player because the big player just isn't focused on the big, big players out serving big elephants. And you can make them be extremely successful. Who cares 
that their logo isn't Facebook or American Express or Marriott Hotels or whatever, or getting a department within a bigger company where the department is making a big bet on you and make middle-sized people who really need you, make them heroes, make them truly successful. And I put all my eggs into really big accounts. I mean, one of my biggest customers was Goldman Sachs back in the day. And I didn't have a lot of revenue and I would do anything for money because I was trying to hit my quarterly targets every quarter. And they say, here's a million dollars. And I'm like, okay, yes, sir, please, sir. Can I have another, sir? What do you want me to build, sir? It was wrong. And I just think focus on being a deer hunter. It's interesting because if you look at traditional business products, there's enterprise and then there's volume and the middle is really the hardest to go to market with. But I guess if it's product-led, it kind of flips it. So it's an interesting niche, if you will. I just think for me, it's about building muscle because if I serve 25 mid-sized companies, I service them incredibly well. They need me. They really need me. And they love that they get the time and attention of the CEO, right? Because these are companies that don't get CEOs on the phone. And I also get to work out my product deficiencies I get to work out my organizational deficiencies, like how good am I really at supporting rollouts? How good is my integration really? How good is my 24-7 support? With customers who are going to be more tolerant, you know, when I'm kind of cutting my teeth on everything. So for me, then when you're ready to step up and really serve bigger accounts, you've worked out all the kinks. Last question. I know Upfront and yourself are based in LA. I know you're super invested in growing the tech ecosystem here. As we enter a work-from-anywhere world, how much do you think location really matters? I think location is everything. I think people are fooling themselves if they think all remote is here to stay. I'm a big believer in collaborative tools. I'm a big believer in allowing people to live and work how they want to live and work. I'm a big believer in flexibility. I had a couple people say to me, hey, I'm in Orange County in pandemic. Can I stay? Yeah, no problem. But your corpus of people, there's a certain amount of creativity that comes from in-person, from working with other humans. There's a reason why there were so many people, let's say, in the Middle Ages, as we came out of that and you had the Renaissance, were all gathered in places like Venice and Florence, rather, and why Florence succeeded and created this movement in art and architecture and other fields because you had a corpus of people who are all experts sharing at the same time. There's a reason why you have so many innovative financial products come out of New York City, why you have so much creative energy coming out of Los Angeles, why Silicon Valley has been so successful for so long at launching startup companies. I think that's going to be way more distributed over time. I think the tools are there for successful companies to be built in. Well, we've already seen it. Look at Shopify in Toronto, right? Amazing success. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley. But I think location matters. And I think what you need is you need a location where you can get a critical mass of incredibly hardworking, smart people who are aligned on vision to work together. And yes, you can tolerate some people being remote or having centers of excellence, but I think you're fooling yourself if you think you're getting full productivity from everybody being totally distributed. Mark, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Of course, it's been wonderful. Thank you. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. The true heroes in my mind are the 
folks who did the quiet work of ushering that transformation through a company, they get no credit. They're the note takers in the meeting, but they're the people who are the lifeblood of transformation. Former CTO at Microsoft US and principal owner of Digital Future Consulting, Jennifer Byrne. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.